Hi, this is Robert Grigor, author of You Need Therapy, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. Joining me today is Robert Grigor. Robert A. Grigor, MCP, RCC, is the owner of Grigor Consulting. He has dedicated his practice to helping creative professionals radically let go of unhealthy behavior patterns and unwanted feelings and belief systems in as little as a single weekend. He knows that when we're living in your highest state, you not only create through a higher vibration, but your message strikes a deeper chord with your following. Robert is here to talk about his book, You Need Therapy, EMDR, Real People with Real Problems Getting Real Help. Welcome, Robert. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. And to your audience, thank you for having me in your ears. Well, it's great for you to be here. And I'd love to ask you, Robert, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Um, God, I'll think about that all day today. You know, the person in my childhood that influenced me the most was my father. My dad is literally the most humble person I have ever known. And, you know, he constantly inspired me to pursue myself and my dreams and my passions. He is a doctor as well as now he's a retired heart surgeon. And um, he'd come home literally saving people's lives. Literally, you know, they're on the operating table and he'd save their lives. And, you know, I'd say, how was your day? Oh, that was good. <laughs> wow. Uh, so that was uh, coming from, from him. Uh, that humility was just one of the best qualities. I imagine that he didn't always just say it was good, but you got to share in some of the details, probably as he was maybe preparing for a surgery or struggling over what course of, of treatment to give someone who was in a tricky predicament. Do you remember how he would discuss that with you and how you felt about him as a result of him sharing that kind of, of intimate work, yet that had such a monumental impact on individuals' lives? You know, it's interesting. He did not go into that much detail with me as to particular cases. I think he, he honestly tried to shelter me growing up because it's 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 quite a a deep and and impactful type of work where you're literally you know changing and saving people's lives in that manner. But one of the things that he that I did get without him trying because he was also um, a general practitioner in our small town. For most of my childhood, he was the only doctor in town. So we would literally get people phoning and showing up, you know, on our doorstep at quite literally all hours of the day. And I noticed early on that I loved my father's passion and his position in the community but what I didn't love was, you know, the lack of privacy and the and the constant, you know, unknown interruptions that could come. So there was a lot of responsibility. And, you know, I moved quite uh, drastically away from that. I actually wanted to be an artist and um, a musician, which I ended up becoming. But uh, I wanted to move actually as far away from health and the health field as possible, only to now wind up there now. Do you remember what was going on in your life at the time when you made the decision to say, you know what, I, I've gotten this band together or I've learned guitar and I think I'm going to go back to med school. Or <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was a shock to your, your friends. Um, do you remember what was going on? It must have been some moment that you had that, that insight. Yeah, it's hard as a musician, I tell you. The peer pressure, man. <laughs> It actually wasn't as much my decision as I would like to give you as the answer, but uh, we were on the precipice of being assigned with a manager and a record label. And um, that be it took, you know, back, you know, garage band sort of, uh, we, we worked in a studio and, and we created our own music and really loved our music. Um, and we did some, some pretty major shows in Vancouver, uh, where I'm from. But then we had that opportunity it was literally was a sit down with this manager 
And she said, okay, well, I'm ready to take you guys if you're ready. And then on that, right after that meeting, two of my band members quit. Like the dream was right there on a silver platter and they just walked away from it. How come? I think that the pressure was too much. You know, it was, it was reality. Reality is okay. Now, you know, this, we, I talk often with my clients about, you know, fear of success, not just fear of failure, but fear of success. What are you going to have to give up when you are this person now? So I feel like that was probably a major determining factor that people, my, these two members were just not ready. And, um, truth be told after I finished, you know, I, 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 uh, rounded up two more band members. We played for a few more years. And, you know, I think the music even got better. But I then made the decision later on that, you know, what it really go comes down to the amount of work and focus and determination to do this music career, which I will be very honest, I can't read any music. I can't, you know, <laughs> I have no real musical background. I was just gifted with my tone and I could sing and I could create music. But that was, I, I really felt that my gift to the world was not going to be music because that would just be so much more effort and time. And, you know, this is why I love working with musicians as well, because I know what kind of goes into it. But I recognize that I can help more people on a maybe deeper level personally with with psychology and my my therapy. So at that, that point, it was a decision to go in that direction. I think that's really interesting. And I know that whenever people have a different career than the one they initially chose, the path they originally set out on, that you bring with you to that second career a lot of insights, deeper insights than people who have never tried it, than people who've only read about it. I know that from the angel investing community, one criteria that we always look at when people come looking for funds is what have they done before with funds they were given? If they've been successful fundraisers, how did those companies turn out? And many times entrepreneurs will say sheepishly, ashamedly, abashedly, they'll say, well, I did raise several million dollars and that company failed. And here's what I learned from it, if you're interested. And of course we're interested because that's the kind of person that we really do want to hear from. We want to hear from people who have reflected on their losses, licked their wounds, and are eager to come back and apply those hard-fought lessons learned. Now, becoming a therapist is an interesting career choice. When you became a therapist, a lot of times people think that therapy is for people who have troubles that are somehow a fault of their own, when that's not actually the case. Mm -hmm. What led you to say, this is what I want, and it's different from anyone who you knew in your family, but what led you to that decision to become a therapist? I think that that decision came... I obviously I can't really speak for other therapists, but I feel like it's something I heard often in my master's education was we really want to figure ourselves out because we've got problems and we want to figure out what's what's that how, how to heal ourselves and and become our best selves. So honestly, it was very it was selfish to begin with to become a therapist. I wanted to learn how to heal myself and understand myself because I came from a a path where probably my biggest teacher in my throughout my life has been my own pain. And coming from a past history of, from a very young age, depression, anxiety, and addictions, which were to video games and TV and uh, pornography when I found it, um, which then later turned into drugs and alcohol, and then sex in my adult years, I was carrying a lot of pain, and I needed to get rid of that. And when I sort of found therapy as a backdoor um, profession, my BA was actually in a philosophy course, a philosophy program where I learned existentialism as my, my focus, because uh, I really wanted to answer the big questions. Why am I here? What is my pain for? Why am I in this position? Why is there pain in our world and not no pain? Before you go further, Robert, I, I just want to make the transition for people who are who are mystified by this. Let's just be clear. It probably wasn't mistake or happenstance 
that as a rock and roll musician, you found access to drugs, alcohol, and sex that allowed you to have those opportunities and become addicted. So they became very easy signals for you to be able to pursue therapy and have lots of examples to work with that was all probably due to masking, distracting, and covering up the underlying pain. Is that fair? You hit it right on the head. That's exactly it, Bill. So as you went into therapy, you not only got the tools and skills to be able to make some progress, you also discovered something called EMDR, which I'll I'll let you explain it and summarize. Just in a nutshell, what is EMDR and how did you first encounter it? Well, first I'll say EMDR is not talk therapy. That's really important to know. And I'll explain that in a second. But so EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Obviously, it's a mouthful, so we just use the acronym EMDR. In a nutshell, EMDR is a trauma, accelerated trauma reprocessing therapy, where the distress that you're experiencing, and I say you because I believe we all need therapy, as the title of my book the root of that distress is always from earlier life experiences that were not properly processed by your brain and then is actually stored maladaptively in your brain so that you are becoming triggered on a far more frequent basis. And EMDR helps to identify what those core experiences were that created that distress in the first place And instead of just masking it with, you know, um, fancy coping strategies, which can be helpful, but doesn't really get to the core issue, EMDR finds the core experiences, finally processes them properly in your brain and allows you to move on without ever having to worry about learning all these new tools. That's very interesting. I I want people to think about this with an accurate model. And, And let me just see if we could use an analogy here. Kind of like if we gather information about our world. And we've all heard about, you know, tens of millions of bits of information come through our senses every minute of our lives. And all that information gets filled on, let's say, index cards. But information that comes in that's surrounding painful trauma comes in on index cards that's full of gunk, chewing gum and oil and, you know, blood and sweat and all sorts of things like that. And all of that mess doesn't allow the next cards to be accessed and read with the information to be able to understand that that was a scary experience. And, you know, it's not, it's something that happened when someone was really small. And this is a therapy that is kind of like a solvent that cleans off those cards so you can access the information on it and lets the residue just naturally process out of the body, kind of like, you know, what white blood cells do. Is that close? That is a great analogy. I might have to take that, Bill. Are you okay if I do that? Please. (laughs) First three times, give me credit. Then after that, it's yours. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. No, that's a really great way of putting it because, you know, it gets so complicated. You've got all these index cards in your mind that are holding, uh, sticking everything together and you can't see clearly. You know, so many of my clients talk about a fog that's over their mind and they can't see clearly. And when you're dealing with all of these gunked up index cards in your mind, you actually cannot make a clear decision. It's so much more difficult to find that clarity. It's so much more difficult to find common peace. And our brain's actually affected quite negatively if we're constantly under stress. You know, our ability to make logical decisions and be creative with how we manage a particular problem decreases. And, uh, you know, that's why it can you can be okay for you know, a little while if you're doing some uh, particular coping strategies, but then pretty soon those aren't going to work anymore. And then you're going to need something like EMDR. So one of the other principles that I got from the book is that the brain is always looking to heal itself. And that's why we repeat these experiences because it's looking to fully process was interrupted previously, probably during the initial hurt experience. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's, most people are amazed by themselves finding you know the insight during our work together that they are repeating past experiences i very routinely will point out to my clients you know this particular situation with your boss doesn't that sound like your mother 
and like, oh my gosh, that's that's exactly it. And then you know that insight can help, but that that's one of the the myths that that insight will create change. It has to be on, on a deeper level than that, actually. But the brain is constantly healing itself. It wants to heal, just like you know, if you were to break your leg, and the bones want to heal, the you know your your tissue wants to heal. And just like, you know, you would get a doctor to set your bones properly in a cast and then just let your, your, your leg heal itself. EMDR is the exact same thing. Your brain wants to heal and you just need the therapist to set your mind in the right direction and then it's going to do itself. So this is something that is so apparent day in and day out with business leaders. This is manifest. This is a sign from people who are always looking to get credit for other people's work. There's unhealed trauma that's causing them to need that approval, that satisfaction, that attention. It's from people who always make the wrong hire, keep saying, gosh darn it, how is it that I can't hire someone for this customer service position? And everyone I hire seems to be going through and giving me the, you know, the same problems. Well, when you make those decisions, you're reenacting and looking to come to a healing place from reenacting that trauma. It's, the, it's similar for when people are caught in procrastination <laughs> and can likely be looking to work this out, but the same thing happens and you create that stress and that anxiety. The big report that's due every quarter, it's predictable. And if you started earlier, you wouldn't have that much stress, but you've got to come to that insight. No amount of time management tools, a special calendar, or even the latest app is going to help you change that. What is going to help them change that, Robert? That's a fantastic place to, to bring this conversation. And as you can tell, most listeners will say, yeah, I know all that stuff, Bill. I know the, I know the time management software. I know these skills. I know breathing. I know this. And that's true. This is all logical. You know, we can tell I keep making the same mistake. What needs to happen is on the right hemisphere of the brain. This is where the traumatic experiences or, you know, let's just say negative experiences that, that occurred earlier in life are stored without actually healing that part of your system in your, in your brain, you will continue to make those same mistakes. And it can be so frustrating for people who constantly make the same you know, problem. I've had you know CEOs that I've worked with that are in wonderful positions, and you know, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, that particular type of person will come into the meeting, and then they will become frozen, and they'll just stop. And no more are they this powerful CEO who's literally in charge of the whole ship. They are now feel like they're six again. So I know that there are therapies out there and there are a lot of talk therapies that people come in and they talk with a therapist, you know, here's your session. Um, let's meet once or twice a week for the next umpteen years. Yeah. Is there any difference with how EMDR works? Yeah. So it, there's, there's a huge difference between EMDR and talk therapy. I'm a proponent. I, I love all therapies. There's always a benefit in everything. So I'll just say that. But there are some issues with talk therapy, which I experienced both as a client of a talk therapy session, as well as the therapist. So as a client, I would literally have my session with my therapist and he was wonderful. I loved him so much. And then immediately after that session, I would go to the nearest bar downstairs and have maybe four to six shots. And that wasn't the prescription that was given as part of the therapy, was it? No, I don't. That was not, at least not what I thought. No, definitely okay. not the prescription. And the reason why that was happening was the therapy, the talking uh, it, part of the therapy was stimulating the earlier trauma. It's, there's a neurological sequence in your brain that's literally connected to all these experiences and where the therapy was eliciting them, they were stimulating them. And so now I was re-experiencing that original pain and hurt from those experiences and then just talking about it. And so you can't stimulate something on the right side of your brain and then use only your left side of your brain to talk about it. It just doesn't compute. There is literally, it's like both hemispheres of your brain are speaking two different languages. So what happened is I spent four years in that therapy and had the same problem that I came in with. 
as a therapist, I spent two to three years with my clients going over and over and over again, the same types of issues. And while the therapy was, you know, quote unquote, helpful, you know, they could tell their story, they felt heard, they felt seen, they still weren't not getting any better. And so I, I often equate this to therapy was like trying to take down a redwood tree with a spoon. We were going to grow old together. It just wasn't a good fit. So then I found EMDR as a, on a whim. I decided to try it out. And I almost left at the very beginning of uh, the first day of training because I thought it was totally ludicrous what they were talking about, waving your hand in front of somebody's face and suddenly they feel better. I thought that was just crazy turns out it works. And um, I was able to take those therapy, those treatments with my clients. Instead of two to three years, I was able to minimize it down to six months, sometimes even three months for clients, and they were better, no more PTSD. They I even had one client say that he could literally meet his attacker, his abuser, uh, sexual abuser, in a mall and have a conversation with him and you know obviously they wouldn't be friends but he could be civil and he could walk away without feeling any distress i thought that was powerful as heck see what i find so inspiring and encouraging about this is that people who are trapped by automatic reactions every time somebody comes in a room who's a particular type of person they use a particular type of voice particular type of language a reason or even things like you know racism. None of us are born racist, but people have these strong automatic reactions for it, which I think are somehow related to survival. They equate that with survival to be able to be superior to some other person or some other group of people. And you don't, if you can heal from a trauma, I imagine that you gain that degree of freedom back, like you just spoke about with that client who was able to talk with someone who hurt him terribly and then be able to have a conversation with them if they ever chose to. I don't know why they would choose to, but they probably, you know, they, they want that degree of freedom so they don't live under that constant pressure of the anxiety. They don't live under that fear or that they've made these decisions about themselves in response to the hurt. Like, I'm not worthy. If I was really worthy, maybe someone would have come and protected me or any number of different conclusions that could be made incorrectly by us as small children when we're in traumatic situations like that. Isn't that what people want is that degree of freedom? Absolutely, Bill. And, and I want to give you an example of a, a past client of mine. Obviously, your show is geared towards the business world. And there was a client of mine, let's call him John. And he's CEO of a fairly successful business. Uh, working in the construction field out here in Vancouver, BC. How large was the business, Robert? How much? Uh, multi, multi. We're talking, I think the, the numbers were, you know, 20 to $50 million per year. And they had about how many people working there, do you think? Uh, just over 50. Great. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, there was quite a bit of responsibility, certainly success. He was able to financially support whatever endeavor he ever wanted. So, you know, you know, finances wasn't the issue. And he came to see me because he was, quote unquote, a jerk. He said, I'm an asshole. I'm just this mean guy that I'll blow up, you know, at a cab driver who's trying to take me from point A to point B. And if they don't take the right uh, route, I'm going to blow up on them. And this was causing tremendous stress in his life. I mean, who wants to constantly do business with someone like that who's constantly angry? So his rage was holding him back in so many ways. He literally felt, you know, while he had control over everything else, I mean, quote unquote, his rage was holding him back. And, you know, he would drink as well and he would have some other uh, addictions, but his rage was his main issue. So, you know, we started with the, the work around that aspect because that's what we knew at the moment. But when it turns out, it wasn't just that he was an asshole. It wasn't just that he was this person. This came from much, much, much earlier pain and trauma that he didn't even recognize as traumatic. It was a sexual abuse experience. And even though at the time... You know, he, one of the unfortunate 
situations with men is that if an older female abuses us, then we're somehow supposed to think this is, you know, uh, we scored, we got lucky. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in therapy with guys that have been abused by women. And it's an unfortunate uh, how often that happens. But so, so he grew up thinking that this was somehow positive for him. And through our therapy, literally, it took us, you know, just a few hours. And, you know, this experience, plus a bunch of other experiences were no longer distressing to him. And he no longer blew up randomly for people. He was actually compassionate, kind hearted gentleman that really wants other people to feel empowered. And also he now knows that he deserves to be respected and to feel that he matters with his business in actually all areas of his life, not just business, but in his personal life, with his family. So it had a, a you know, completely transformative effect. And over what period of time did that change take place? Days, literally only a few days. And he was this completely, uh, he would say he's a different person, but I would say that he's just now more himself. It's funny. It's, it's like the Michelangelo quote where he would talk about how he knew how to sculpt such beautiful statues. And he said he would look at a block of marble and just carve away everything that wasn't David, for instance. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. We're allowed. To, I, I believe in allowing the individual's extraordinary essence to be finally released and free. Everything else before this is a prison. So one thing that I want to underscore here is that a lot of times people who are business leaders and have areas of responsibility and who take on these larger roles, they often would be curious about or open to therapy if it didn't cost so dang much and take so darn long. And we're injured or hurt sometimes repeatedly, but oftentimes in a single instance, and that takes so little time. Why is it that therapies take so long? And have you ever experienced something that was different than that? Yeah, that's a that's a common complaint that a lot of my clients who are who are new to me come to me letting me know about that, you know, they've they they may have tried some things before, it didn't work, but it's it's the time, the amount of time that that other therapies can take. You know, it's not uncommon to have I've had many, many, many clients come to me saying, I've done 10 years of talk therapy and while there is always benefit in learning more about yourself, having more insight and self-awareness, this is all good things, but it still results in the same issues. Let me, let me tell you about a client that uh, came in to see me who heard of my success with EMDR and I was able to change you know, uh, people's you know, therapy treatment times from you know, two plus years down to six months, sometimes even three months. So this, uh, this client was a high profile media celebrity. And uh, obviously, I can't share the name on that one. But uh, let's call her Carla. So Carla comes in and she lets me know that she's got this addiction. She's you know having trouble going on on stage. And she just wants to feel that freedom and no longer be a prisoner to her vices. So she comes in and uh, we sit down in the exact same way that I've done in you know numerous times before. And in the 90 minute session, she literally got up and said, I'm sorry, Robert, but I don't feel like you can help me fast enough. And I felt like I got the wind taken out of me, <laughs> like fell flat on my face. And I was thinking that, you know, I was pretty much a therapy hotshot at that point. I was thinking about myself. And then, you know, she left. And I thought, wow, that's like my dream client. She just got up and left. And instead of you know, calling it quits and, you know, toiling, I really, that, that lit a fire under me. And I decided that I was going to help clients faster. So I know that if I had uh, her back in and I were to tell her, look, one weekend, I'm going to heal you forever. That'd be a very different story. So it, it motivated me to take a one weekend approach to eliminate her addiction and eliminate whatever distress is causing her, her issue and it's been incredibly well received by CEOs, entrepreneurs, actors, musicians. 
directors, you know, uh, professional athletes, really anybody that's in a high performance position that doesn't have, you know, three months of weekly sessions, they don't have that time to invest in, in their treatment, even though it's so important, it's, it's so needed to do this in a quick format. So by going through this sequence of three or four days with you, they're able to get to the core issues and resolve them in a way that's faster by orders of magnitude, not just three or four days or three or four years, or not just three or four months, but in three or four days. How does that last when you follow up with clients? Because we're going right to the core, we're healing the, the brain at its, at its core level of how this information is stored. It is, I would say, 99.9% .9 of the time the case that individuals are completely fine with that area of their life. They may have other issues that's, you know, that would, they might have to work on, but with that thing that they came into therapy for for that weekend, it's clear. And it, the, the change is so dramatic that one of the things I have to let my clients know about is, look, this is actually going to cause some ripple effects in your life, in all areas, in your personal life, as well as your business, because you are a part of a system in each of those areas. So it's a dramatic change that we then at, after the weekend is over, I have clients, we do a follow-up session, just check on all the work that we did. And then we, we move into integration mode. There's different relationships that will need to be integrated. And the rest of my clients' lives, uh, life has to be further you know, enmeshed in their new way of, of looking at the world, looking at themselves. Usually it's organic and there's, there's little change that has to happen, but there could be some major issues like how, how to speak to your team, how to speak to your boss if you're not the, at, at the top. And, and these are some, we can't really predict them in the therapy, so they, they might have to come later on, but they're, they're so much easier at that point that it just comes like, um, like butter. It's interesting. I think of how often people would meet after work for a drink. And if somebody had a drinking problem, they wouldn't be at their best doing that sort of meeting. And if they were healed of the addiction and able to still meet in bars with people if they chose to or restaurants and just choose not to drink, that would give them such an advantage in being able to be present and comfortable not anxious or feeling tension or pressure because they weren't drinking, which is what they themselves expected, but it's not what everyone else expects. Exactly. And underlying the, you, you said it there, underlying the over drinking is anxiety and stress. And when that's clear, then the individual no longer needs to use that particular addiction. So this, this is making me think about another one of my past clients, uh, Brenda, who is an entrepreneur in the healthcare industry. And she ran a, a smaller business, you know, 10 people, but extremely successful in her field. But her business was actually struggling a little bit. She's out here in, in, in Vancouver as well, Canada. And she had this addiction that was causing her tremendous grief. And like most addictions, there's always an element of shame attached to it. If people only knew what I was doing or only knew how I was feeling, they would no longer trust me. They would no longer do business with me. Most of my, my clients that I, that I see as uh, either in the entrepreneur or the president or the CEO of a, of a company, I always talk with them about wearing this mask that it's, it's how they think the world wants, how they think the world is seeing them versus how they are really feeling. This is a metaphorical mask. I just want to emphasize, not a pandemic mask. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So at this time, we have to keep the pandemic mask on, but uh, otherwise, we want to take the mask off. And the issue went, was so core. You know, she she came in believing that she had an issue with just you know a drinking addiction, and you know, obviously, that's that that gets people in the door. So that you have to recognize that okay, I'm having a problem with this. This is no longer helping me. It always has to be the first step, you know, that self-awareness. But then she comes in and she thought we're going to focus on her addiction, which of course we did, but it wasn't, you know, that it was her addiction necessarily that was her problem. It was that she believed that she wasn't worthy of love. And this, of course, stems from early childhood. And in fact, what I found now with 
every one of my clients, that belief system, I'm not worthy of love, didn't just start with her childhood. It actually started with her parents' parents and her parents' parents' parents and so on and forth. As you go down the generational line, this is a way of, I call this a generational culture, a traumatic culture that's passed down through the through the generations. So people are in her family are just this way. They're just making, you know, love conditional. I have to do X, Y, and Z for my parents' love. And this is a huge issue with so many high performers that, that I get in my office that parents' love was conditional. So we had to heal her memories of her parents' conditional love. I only love you if you get an A+. I only love you if you're better than your brother, Billy. And so when Brenda was able to heal that completely, so she had no doubt in her mind that she was worthy of love regardless of what other people said, she was unable to transform her business. Prior to working with me, she had a member of her team who was not a senior member, just a regular member of the team that was actually calling the shots. So it was like insubordination, right? It had this client, or the, sorry, this um, uh, team member that would, you know, really provide a counter opinion or counter direction for the other team members. And because my client was being triggered by this person, she no longer felt like she was the boss. And this is very difficult to run a business when you're not the boss, if you are the boss, right? So we were able to eliminate her belief that she wasn't worthy of love, that she wasn't good enough. And her confidence soared astronomically, where she was able to actually have a, a conversation with this person and come from a place of deep, profound empathy, which is so important right now in our world, and understand what was going on with this person and see if they could come to some kind of a, an agreement, some way to work this out. And it turns out that they couldn't. And I was able to work with her to on an exit strategy for that individual, you know, providing her with options of how to leave. And, and, and at this point, lay down some structural boundaries of how to engage in the workplace amongst each other, goals, you know, meetings. And, you know, the, the transformation in the business was incredible. Robert, help me understand this. If somebody walks into a situation, sort of like you were describing with Brenda, and she was saying that she felt like she wasn't being respected and she felt like she wasn't in charge, but there really wasn't any sort of active disrespect going on, that would be baggage that Brenda was carrying that made the situation more difficult. Isn't that right? Absolutely. The situations, you know, barring obvious violence or something like that, obvious aggression. But for the most part, I would say somewhere like 90% of our experiences, it's our own interpretation, which is coloring that, you know, our, our past is keeping us a prisoner of our present. Our present is a prisoner of our past. So by healing the past, she breaks free of that particular lens that was coloring her world. And then she's able to see the situation for what it truly is. Just a situation. Excellent. Robert, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? I can't wait, Bill. All right. It's here. Earlier, I asked you at the beginning of the interview of who's someone who influenced or inspired you growing up. And this will be a great question for you. When you were a teenager, what's a song you found inspiring? You come home from school, you throw down your books. What do you put on on the radio? You know, it's going to come down to Metallica Enter Sandman. Uh, <laughs> there was just so much angst and, and aggression that I had to get out. And that was what I would turn to. And you have a mission because EMDR is well known. It's been around. It's relatively new. I think it's been around since the 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And you have a mission to help bring this rapid, effective therapy to people who need it. What helps you get your word out each week about this mission? Well, for one, you. You're helping me with that. And the, the depth of the mission, you know, I, I want every business to hold the belief of the importance of empathy and mental health in the organization. And I think it comes down to 
I would die for this change in the world that deep that if I could give my life so that businesses and people all through North America or the world would all do EMDR, would all foster their empathy and compassion for each other, that would be a life worth served. So that that's what motivates me. In the last six months or so, what would you say is the best $100 purchase you've made? I would say that the best $100 purchase that I've made has been for a couple of audio books around just the nature of consciousness. So I've, I've, I've been able to expand my consciousness by reading some of the Seth material and really going deeper than, you know, the regular psychology depth that, that I'm, I'm kind of used to seeing in the psychology world. So it's really fostering my, my deep sense of spirituality. So I'd have to say that those, those books have just really opened my mind. And here's one you're going to love. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped or released in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? You're right. I do love that <laughs> um, for sure. The greatest and most important negative quality that we all make decisions with, which I am one of those people making these decisions, fear letting go of fear and, and the various ways that's manifested in my life and making that a priority to eliminate that and foster my own love for me and for the rest of the world. So I'm just going to follow up with the fear one. What was a specific thing that you used to have fear over that no longer controls you or limits you? And how's your life different? Yeah, I'm not good enough. One of the most common ones out there, I'm not good enough. And to let go of that has allowed me to step into my truest potential. And of course, I'm still growing, but to really fully believe in my abilities, it's been completely transformative in my business. Fabulous. Robert, we talked about EMDB. We just briefly talked about EMDB being a relatively new modality. It's been around, I think Francine Shapiro started teaching it in the late 80s, early 90s. And just this past year, in 2020, the American Psychological Association gave it full recognition as an effective modality for treating PTSD. What do you think keeps EMDR, since it is effective and efficient, from being more widely known and adopted? Oh, this is a good question. And I hope that I don't run into trouble with this one because I've got I've got some perspectives. But yeah, it's absolutely widely known, recognized. And I'll say that the World Health Organization, American Psychological Association, American Psychiatric Association, and on and on and on and on, on has been recognizing it for actually quite some time. But it's not as widely known for a couple of reasons. Number one, other forms of therapy like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and talk therapy in general, psychoanalysis has been around for hundreds of years now. So there's, there's psychoanalysis being over 100 years now, CBT being almost 100. They're more widely known. There's been more studies on those particular types of therapies. Now, in conjunction with medication, medication being one of the most widely accessible types of treatment plans for mental health, anxiety, depression, you can walk into, you know, your doctor's office and almost, at least here in Canada, maybe I can't speak in the States, but in Canada, um, it's so, so common to get a prescription right off the bat. And I believe that the, the numbers in Canada for mental health, for prescriptions uh, for the average person in their, in their, in a year is something with the, I think it's like $60 or something like that per per prescription. And obviously up in Canada, part of our a large portion portion of our medical care is covered. It's, it's not it's not private, it's public. And, uh, but still the the industry the, the pharmaceutical industry is making astronomical numbers on people that are needing to take medication and not everybody can afford therapy at all. So medication may be the only option for some people. 
So unfortunately, that's like a $2 billion industry or more. I can't remember the numbers exactly right now, but it's huge. And then you take that and um, I'm sure it's larger in the United States. So Robert, one or two steps that if someone is intrigued by our discussion that they could take to follow up either by learning more, by reading more, by attending something to gain a better perspective as to whether EMDR might be a tool that could be helpful in them living a more optimal life and being the best version of themselves. Yeah, I feel like it's going to it's going to be a little bit of self-promotion and I obviously don't want to be doing that to to the degree but come to my website, it's free right off the off the bat, regrowcounseling.com. What are two or three resources that you find helpful in staying up to date with the latest developments and advances in EMDR? If you go to the EMDR International Association website, that's emdria.org, there are all kinds of resources there for the general public as well as for therapists to get more information. There is a journal of EMDR research, which I believe anybody can access. Perhaps we can link that up for people. And there will be studies in there, you know, uh, peer-reviewed controlled studies that are that are done on EMDR. And you can, if you were to look at even just Google, if you go to Google EMDR, there are tons of resources. Now it's, it's becoming more and more prevalent. You can see examples of clips on YouTube where you can see a therapy session, what it looks like. I did a really short segment on global TV, uh, global news here up in BC on EMDR, just three minutes on what it is. And uh, obviously my book has is, is been written for the purpose, two purposes actually. For one, for the general person who's never even known if they wanted therapy, but just thinks something's wrong. And uh, that's, an, that's a great resource. It's, it's next to nothing. Uh, I made it that reason for, for made it that way for a particular reason. So very clear information there as to therapy and then EMDR. And uh, I also wrote that for uh, practitioners who are new in the field that needed some guidance. So those are those are some resources there. Well, Robert, you have been so generous in sharing with me on my quest for the best. I want to thank you so much. You've talked about and shared about how your father was an incredible role model for you as both the town's um, primary GP as well as a cardiac surgeon. And from his example and his humility and his encouragement for you to pursue your dreams and your passions, you learned so much and were able to make bold moves in your life. You talked about the importance of recognizing how the fear of success holds us back and that it limited your band, perhaps, in going in a particular direction. Because once you got the contract, two members suddenly said, whoop, that's too close for me and backed out. You had a first career as a singer and songwriter and knew that the music that you were creating might not be your ultimate contribution to the world. And that led you to going back and learning about therapy and starting with your own pain, which you recognize as our best teacher, you use that and helped guide you to create this journey of healing and learning effective modalities. And along your way, your path of professional development, you encountered EMDR and found its effectiveness and wanted to help people. So you gravitated towards things that worked and found that it was more effective in many cases than talk therapy and had several experiences, starting with a a celebrity client who you understood because of your interest and your pursuit of being a, a performer, you understood some of the pain that she was feeling and you weren't able to help her because she dismissed the opportunity because it would take too long. So it led you on a further quest to find something and find a way to retool your practice in order to become more effective and be able to have clients like that who would say yes to a weekend therapy. And so many of our listeners will hear this and say, my gosh, what are the opportunities for me to take advantage of opportunities the way that the pandemic has changed business? And they'll be inspired by your example through that. And we talked about several examples with the construction leader, John, in Vancouver, who came out saying, you know, I'm a mean asshole and knew that he had a lot of rage that was holding him back. And 
that it was limiting his enjoyment of life and also what types of ways that he could operate in the world. Carla, who was a celebrity and no longer wanted to be a prisoner of her own vices and sought therapy so that she could release the, the hold that those addictions had on her. And then Brenda, who ran a healthcare business that was struggling largely because she is the leader, suffered from the grief and shame around her addiction, which was a layer on top of her feeling unworthy of love. So Robert, for all of these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you again for joining me on my quest for the best. Bill, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for the listeners for taking this in and uh, making their lives better. Thank you so much. Robert, before we say goodbye for now, where could we find out more about you and your work online? Yeah, you can come right to my website, grigorcounseling.com. It's my last name, G-R-I-G-O-R-E, counseling.com. And you can find all kinds of information there. Well, we'll link to your website, your social media platform, and links to your book so that people listening to this episode can go to the show notes and be able to get access to all this great information. Robert Grigor, author of You Need Therapy, I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you so much, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.